0: Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared Business. Today we're featuring an episode from before the pandemic, it was Michael Lewis in conversation with Stephanie Flanders on the birth of behavioural economics. It's a really fascinating conversation which gives us an insight into how the findings of psychology weave their way into the economic field and the enormous societal consequences from that development. It's a really fascinating conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Now let's go to the episode. I think that's what they did, and the Prospect Theory paper, what it really did was make it academically respectable Mm. to start talking about psychology. The idea that even when the mind should be calculating statistics, that's not what the mind does.
1: Good evening. We were saying earlier that the last time I was here doing an event like this was with Thomas Piketty. And I suspected that slightly more people had got to the end of Michael Lewis's books than Thomas Piketty's. (laughs) Economic journalists and financial journalists, I think, have a particular reason to harbour resentment of you, because you've taken, you've trodden all over our territory and actually made it interesting and exciting and entertaining, starting with Liar's Poker, but also slices of the financial crisis... Uh, with Boomerang and The Big Short, and when I heard that you'd written Flash Boys about high-frequency trading, I actually thought for a minute whether it might be a dare that someone had said, "I bet you can't do this. I bet you can't make algorithmic trading interesting." Um, with the most, the sort of exciting action at the beginning involves labor- laying fiber-optic cable, but it's still a really good read. It's so annoying. But we're here at least partly to talk about your, the latest book, *The Undoing Project*, which is about the friendship of two behavioural psychologists, one of whom we went on to win the Nobel Prize. And I guess you know the obvious question is, you know, how did you find these two people? You are famous for bringing to life very complex often sort of shady, difficult-to-understand areas by finding the right people to follow. How did, you, how did you alight on these two characters? Tell us a bit about them.
0: Well, um, I'll tell you how it came about, because it, it is the oddest experience I've had writing books. It, typically, with books for me, I find a subject, um, decide in a few months that it's a book, spend a year and a half figuring out what the book is, And six months, writing it, and I'm done. This thing goes back more than a decade when I first started thinking about it. And the the way it began, uh, so uh, more than a decade ago, I wrote a book called Moneyball, which God knows probably nobody in this audience knows about because they didn't didn't know. Well, didn't find it, it. It was a you know it was a book about American baseball, so it didn't travel very well. But it was lots,
1: lots. of football managers actually would disagree. They've all read it, but
0: uh, well, yeah. so so let me just qu- I have to quickly explain this book because that's the origin of the Undoing Project. Um, the story in Moneyball was about um, a, a team that had no money, having to c- compete against teams with lots of money in professional baseball. I mean, I think the structure in, foot- in British football is probably the same, right? They're poor teams and rich teams. And I had this poor team in my backyard that was had a fifth the sums of the rich teams and was running circles around all these rich teams. And it made no sense to me uh, because I thought that if the market for the baseball players were efficient, the rich teams would just buy all the good players and the poor teams wouldn't stand a chance. So this story that emerges, it turns out the market for baseball players is not efficient. It turns out that the, the, the people who were the baseball experts, the scouts who were evaluating baseball players, misjudged the players. And the t- team that I wrote about, the Oakland A's, explained to me how this all worked. And I thought, when I was writing that story, you know, someone once said an explanation is where the mind comes to rest. And my main, mind came to rest like a step short of where it should have when I wrote that book. Uh, because where it came to rest was, isn't it amazing that these people can be so misvalued uh, that, that this team is, is able to find kind of undervalued players? And the moment I thought, ah, this is the story. I was in the locker room of the Oakland A's uh, interviewing players about what it felt like to be on this oddly managed team. And for the first time, kind of saw them, it was after a game, saw them coming out of the showers. It was the first time I saw them naked. And it was such an unpleasant sight. <laughs> they, they were, uh, they kind of had cankles and fat rolls and the baseball uniform covers up all sorts of stuff and they just didn't look like professional athletes. And I went to the management and said, um, you know, if you, if you line your, the bodies of your players against a wall and asked anybody what they did for a living, nobody would guess they were professional athletes. They would guess they were, you know, accountants. Uh, and... <laughs> And they said, that's, that's part of the point. They said that, that one of the things we look for are players who are physically defective in some way. Because by using the statistical analysis to get to their performance value, we can find, we, can, we know how good they are. But the market is deceived by what they look like. So as a result, they had a player with two club feet they had players, they had players, it was, you know, it was a bit of an island of, of misfit toys situation, and so I thought, wow, um, you know, forget their athletes, think of them as corporate employees, uh, they're doing what they do in front of, for, for a living, in front of millions of people, there's statistics attached to every move they make on a, while they're on the job, they've been doing the same job for a hundred years, if these people can be misvalued, who can't be misvalued. So I thought that was my story. So that book comes out, and it's reviewed by uh, a writing team of Cass Sunstein, who's a legal scholar and worked in the Obama administration, is now teaching at Harvard, and Richard Thaler, who just won the Nobel Prize in economics, and is kind of one of the founding fathers, maybe the founding father of behavioral economics. And they say, very gently, but nevertheless damningly, Mr. Lewis does not understand the point of his own book. <laughs> uh, and it is, oh, it isn't, it's really an interesting story that these guys, that this team has figured out that if you use statistical ju- judgment instead of intuitive judgment to work out who a good baseball player is, you're gonna, you're gonna do a better job of it. Um, but the, he never asked, they say about me, truthfully, that why this is happening. Like, why? Why is it that experts in the market for baseball flesh misjudge the assets? And they said, and this question has been answered by these two Israeli psychologists, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, whose work with a series of papers, really just kind of like a dozen papers written in the 70s and early 80s, explored what the human mind is doing when it's making that kind of judgment, when it's making a judgment in conditions of uncertainty, when it's valuing a stock or valuing a baseball player or making a medical diagnosis or voting for a political candidate. What, uh, and that—that that, that what his story is really about are the systematic errors the mind makes that this team, the Oakland Athletics, is exploiting. When I saw that, I went, oh, no. I mean, because, because I knew that the people in that baseball front office were thinking categories. They were thinking about the kinds of mistakes that the market made. They were aware that a good looking player was gonna be overvalued. So when they saw a player was good looking, they, kind of, they would tend not to pay much attention to him. They, because if he was any good at baseball, he would be properly valued. They were also aware that a hideous looking player or a fat player or a player with two club feet, there might be some value there. They were aware that players that looked like players who had played and done well, would be overvalued. Players who looked like nobody else would be undervalued. They were aware that players who did things that were very very vivid power, sh- power power hitters, people who were fast on the field, things that were, you know, stuck in the mind and the memory would be overvalued. People who had subtle skills that were nevertheless extremely important, like an ability to determine whether a ball was a, a pitch was a ball or a strike. And I promise I won't say any more about baseball. The that that, that would be undervalued. So they had this these ideas of the systematic mistakes. But they'd never connected it up with these guys' work, although they were familiar with behavioral economics. So that's, so that's the beginning. Now, I can continue because I can get you to Danny Kahneman. You, you mentioned, you
1: mentioned the, that duo. So, so, you so here
0: I am sitting thinking I screwed up my own book, uh, that I missed a trick, and it bothered me. It bothered me for the better part of two or three years. I think about it, and I, I, I went and read their papers. I thought, that's interesting. Not so interesting I want to write a book about it. I mean, the academic papers really are written to drive people away from them. And, and, those, and, ones, and those
1: ones are more sort of readable than many. But you know, I but it's the, the tallest midget
0: syndrome. Uh, <laughs> yes. They, you know, when people would say, oh, the, the academics would say, oh, they're wonderful writers. And I'd pick it up and I'd go, like, oh my God, what do what, what the bad writers look like? And, um, really, really yes, bad. D- yeah. D- d- yeah, but and it, the reason is, that academics are writing for a narrow audience of people who are trying to destroy them. And so they, li- they write in this crouch. They're terrified. They do- they- they're terrified of making a mistake. Only after they're hugely successful and tenured and no one can do anything bad to them they bought, are, are they brave enough to make a joke. You know? And it's... it's uh, so anyway, the papers, the ideas in the papers were really interesting. For academic papers, they were very well written. But if it had just been that, I'd have said, well, I missed a trick. But I was uh, having drinks with a friend. I have a friend who serves as a kind of literary therapist for me who happens to be a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley. We meet kind of once a month and just talk about our problems. And I said to him, you know, it's been bothering me, this thing in your field, these guys named Kahneman and Tversky. um, Do you you know anything about them? And he laughed. He said, I was was Amos Tversky's teaching assistant. And... um, and Danny Kahneman lives half a mile from your house. And he said, I'll email him now, go see him. So I went up to see Danny Kahneman, just to see what it was I had missed. And I get there, and he had won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2002. As a psychologist who knew not much economics, which is a pretty good trick. Uh, and, he, and I thought, I never met a Nobel Prize winner and I didn't know what you were, I didn't know how to, I, I felt like there must be some ceremony in meeting this guy. So I, when he opens the door, he's got shorts and bare feet and his hair is sticking every, up every which way. He looks absolutely miserable. And I say something like, oh, what an honor to meet you. And he looks at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> and he says, you mean the Nobel prize? He says, that's so overrated. He says, don't pay any attention to that. He says, the big problem is you come on a horrible day. It's, he says, I've thrown my book in the garbage can. They've made me write a book. Uh, they've talked these people, these evil agents and publishers, taught me into writing a book about my intellectual life. And it's, it's so bad, I realized yesterday or the day before it was going to ruin my reputation, and so I've thrown it away. And I had this con- conversation with him uh, about his book. And it emerges in the course of this conversation uh, that he has been on a basically a several-year quest while he's been writing this book to persuade himself that his book is awful. And he's done things like distribute $5,000, give $5,000 to a friend of his in the field, in his, his field, psychology, to distribute to young, smart people in the field who will remain anonymous to him to write hatchet jobs of his own book so he will learn to hate his book. And I was, I was you know, I thought, God, how bad can this thing be? And, uh, and I took some of it with me. And it was it was thinking fast and slow it was a book that has sold seven million copies now it's a book that a bit like the Piketty book i'm not sure everybody got to the end however it's filled with interest i mean filled stuff with interest so the beginning of this relationship was me running back up to his house saying don't throw that thing away really and he said you don't rightly you don't know anything you know, I, I, you know you, uh, you're, it's nice of you to say. You don't know anything. But it was the beginning of a relationship. And we go on these long walks in the Berkeley Hills. And the walks invariably turned back to his relationship with Amos Tversky, which was more than an intellectual collaboration. It was a love affair. It was an absolute love affair without the sex. Because I think for them, sex was just like second rate compared to thinking. And uh, and, they, they, and it was clearly a um, tumultuous love affair. And the ideas that they had grew out of this relationship. And I started to think, hmm, maybe there's a story that's a love affair about these people. And, and the ideas are part of the story, but it's about this relationship. And the more I dug into it, the more I saw that this collaboration, it was about collaboration, that the things they did uh, together were very unlike the things they had done separately and I got interested in that notion that what people do together gets, can get very interesting uh, if the people are you know, the right people collaborating so that was the beginning that was the beginning of oh maybe this is a book and so that's like late 2007 it isn't until 2015 and I've, between 2007 2015 I'd made Five 10-day trips to Israel. I'd interviewed every old person who knew them. I, I'd wandered around Amos. Amos had died in 1996. I'd wandered around Amos's life. I, I'd gotten access to his papers. Oddly, I'd found out that the one term I'd taught at Cal Berkeley, um, I had a student named Oren Tversky, who I was very fond of, who was Amos's oldest son. And he opened the doors to the family you know, memories. And so I gathered string for eight years before I decided I actually had a book. For the longest time, I thought this isn't a book for me. So, uh, and it, and it, would, it finally drove me to write the thing. I mean, the problems were, problems were obvious. I didn't know anything. I mean, I didn't even have a story to tell myself why I should be writing a, a book about two psychologists. Because this isn't a book about economics. It's a book about psychology that happens to end up having a big effect on economics. I am a happy goy from New Orleans, Louisiana. My subjects were, at least one of my subjects, was a horribly neurotic, unhappy Jew from Israel. And the backdrop to the work was Israel and the birth of the Israeli state. And I thought, I have no business with that subject matter. And then there was this other problem where I've never really felt I had a problem with my subjects being smarter than me. I always felt like I was the B student writing about other B students. And or at least if they were very smart, like Wall Street people, uh, they were in a B student environment. It wasn't really an intellectual environment. And uh, and the there's a laughter. They like you laughing at Wall
1: Street. There's a knowing laughter. But
0: but this was this was the B student writing about the A students, which is really tricky. Uh, I knew that no matter how good I got at them, that I would have a hard time getting my mind fully around them, and at some level, I knew that no matter how good a book I wrote, they would if Amos was alive and Danny would would be dismissive of it so um, so all this that served as kind of a break, and what saved me was the characters getting to know these two characters which i 'm ha- happy to talk about the characters well, now, I, if just, you would like. I mean
1: I did the characters are wonderful, and actually Amos uh, Tversky partly maybe partly because he's only living through the stories that you're you're telling about him He's a very he's obviously incredibly funny did and you there's know just him Mr. Of, no i didn't know him, but i wanted to know him having read some of these uh, quotes and jokes he had he had this one because it has it is as you say it's a very unusual milieu for you but i think for any of us who would read your books that it's in the backdrop of um war and the beginning of israel so you've got someone who's going out being a commando and and being in the army at the same time, or being in the Air Force at the same time as having these thoughts and having this academic life, which is something which is so jarring for people. Um, So I think that was something completely different about that character. But he also just has all these great lines, and you'll, you'll, um, I'm sure, tell us many of them, but I loved him talking, cross with his soldiers on his detail, who said, didn't wear helmets because they said if they were going to get killed, there's a bullet with their name on it. And he would say, well, what about all the bullets that just say to whom it may concern? <laughs> <laughs> um, and his, his organization of his stuff, the letters and things that would just pile up on the desk where he says the great thing about things that are really urgent is if you wait long enough, they're not urgent anymore, which I just thought... Yes, but,
0: and he had, he, had, he would tell people he was so... He regarded it as, he was so... Um, one of the very unusual, his very unusual traits was he was immune to social embarrassment. He thought people wasted way too much time avoiding social embarrassment. And he, if he found himself in any kind of gathering that, he, that bored him or didn't think it was worth his time, small dinner party, uh, staff meeting, uh, faculty meeting, board meeting, he'd up and leave, he'd just up and leave, And he'd tell people, he'd tell his people who would ask him about it, he'd say, you know, it's funny. When you're sitting there and you realize this isn't worth your time, and please don't take this advice, um, (laughs) um, it's very hard to think of the excuse why you need to be gone. But if you get up and you just start walking, it's amazing how fast your mind comes up with a reason. (laughs) Uh, and, And he would tell, you know, his graduate students would walk in on him, and he was, you know, he was... By the time by the late '80s he 's known as famous Amos to them because in his the little world he cares about he 's worshipped by people uh, he 's thought to be by everyone I interviewed who knew him the smartest man they ever met, and he did it without without pretension he did it he, he was he was just smart uh, he had a kind of logician 's mind that that caused people to think well Richard Nisbet the psychologist at Michigan said after he spent time with him he designed what he said was the shortest intelligence test ever designed the Tversky test he called it and it was the longer it takes you after you meet Amos Tversky to figure out you're stupider than he is the stupider you are <laughs> and uh and nobody disagreed with that and Amos didn't disagree with it either <laughs> uh, but it, it's hard you know I want to tell the audience a bit about him, because, you know, the, the, the stories, that, there were many stories like this. Um, uh, in Israel, there is a prize uh, given to a young, young physicist called the Wolf Prize, and the Wolf Prize is a bit like uh, maybe the Bates Prize in, in, in the United States that, in economics, that the person who gets it often goes on to get the Nobel Prize. And... Uh Amos was passing through Israel. This is after he had moved to the United States. And they were having a party for the Wolf Prize winner at Tel Aviv University. And the hostess of the party, who was inviting mainly physicists, wanted Amos to come along. And he comes along. And the next day, she gets a call from the winner of the Wolf Prize and he's who says, who was that physicist I was talking to? And she de- he describes Amos physically uh, and it takes, her, it takes her a while to figure out who he's talking about. And then she finally says, oh, no, 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 that's, that's not a physicist. That's Amos Tversky. He's a psychologist. And the Wolf Prize winner said, that's not possible. He was the smartest physicist I've spoken to. <laughs> and, and how he did this is, a, it's a curious thing. But he, 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 had the, he had the mind of a logician, and he, would, he could just take things you said and with very no, little knowledge, let you see them in a different way. Um, So uh, all of this to say is that he was kind of he he was um, he was a powerful character. One of the problems I had in writing him, I thought that I thought was I was going to have, is that he was dead. I couldn't speak to him, but he made such an impression on everybody who met him. He he, he, his file cabinets filled with his papers still sit outside his office. They've been there for twenty one year's, in, in the halls of Stanford University. Nobody wants to get rid of them. Uh, he saved only what he wanted to save. So he speaks from the grave in a very clear, with a very clear signal. He was, you know, the, the his graduate students would describe to me coming in to him once a week, he'd answer his mail, or look at his mail, and he'd have them in neat piles. He'd have Mondays mail, Tuesday mail, Wednesday mail, and he'd, he would be on a desk, and they say it would be, By the late 80s, it was piled up every day because everybody wanted him for something. They wanted to give him an honorary degree or come to their dinner party or ask him to consult them. And he would, he'd look at the letters and two out of three, he'd just throw in the garbage can. And he told one of his graduate students who was asking him, you know, that's a personal letter to you and you didn't even open it. He'd say, I have a what-can-they-do-to-me rule. If they can't do anything to me, I just chuck it away. And, and so this person who was so particular about what he said, how he spent his time, what he kept, um, emerges as this very clear character, in a way, oddly, that Danny Kahneman does not, who is a very murky, changeable, shape-shifting character. But the, uh, the, the power of the personalities and the, the oddness of the combination... Nobody who knew them in Israel could imagine how they could collaborate. Nobody could see you know, how the relationship worked. The, the, the thinking was Amos had no time for difficult people. I mean, he thought life was pretty simple and he thought people were basically pretty simple and the complexity they added to it was mostly bullshit. And, uh, and but every now and then a complicated person enters his life, and his, his life and it's because he's complicated in a really interesting way. And Danny was complicated in a really interesting way. Um, Danny brought, you know, it, it was Danny brought a, a kind of artistic imagination to the logician's scalp, a, and uh, and and Amos Amos went to work on it. Um, anyway.
1: So you just need, he needed someone who was going to produce all this intellectual fodder, which he could then think about. But just going back a little bit on the the backdrop, which is this unusual one in terms of the early years in Israel, and they'd both had, which we don't necessarily need to go into here, but they'd both had um, their own kind of harrowing family experiences uh, in war and, and loss. And you do make the point in the book, or in, and I think even it's Danny Kahneman makes the point, that perhaps it's because... They had that experience, and they're surrounded by war in Israel and the threat of war. That they look at some of these things differently. When actually economists are often have done these elaborate when they when they experiment or they think about choosing between things, it's usually between two gains. You know, you're going to make money this way, you're going to make money that way, and that's often how finance is thought about. But if you're thinking in terms of losses one of the insights of behavioral economics is that you think very differently about avoiding a loss or suffering a loss. So do you, th- do you think that did, you know, the, the backdrop in Israel did affect the way they approached some of these problems, gave them a bit more of an insight?
0: Absolutely. Um, I think the, uh, so one time, Danny said to me interestingly once that when they were in a room alone together just talking, what they were doing even though they inv- basically invent the field of behavioral economics, and even though they invent a field inside psychology called judgment and decision making, and even though their work kind of systematically touches lots of parts of, of life, um, they're just thinking, how do, what makes people tick? They're just having fun talking about things they've seen. And he said they were talking, usually what they were talking about is war or Israeli politics. Things they'd seen in the army, things they were observing in the Israeli political life. Uh, and they'd made some conscious decision, and why I never quite understood, not to include any of those examples in their work. Uh, the start of the conversation I- is what they're seeing in Israel. But it's even more than that. I mean, I think that when you look at who they are as people, I mean, Danny Kahneman, um, I mean, this is a, this is a, a man who spent age seven to 11 as a Jew in France hiding from Nazis uh, because his father had misjudged um, the Germans' intentions. His father, who had lived through World War I, said, I've seen this all before, and the Germans are no threat to the Jews. We'll stay. We won't go to Israel. And uh, and Danny, um, I mean... You've got to get some idea of how, how simple and... Cl- how, however simple, clear, self-assured, confident Amos Tversky was, Danny Kahneman um, was the opposite. And in... You know, someone once said to me, Danny's superpower is doubt. That where everybody else's mind comes to rest, his refuses to. He has some great idea... He makes it even greater by doubting his own, own great idea. He's never settled. And where does that come from? I mean, part of it, I think, comes from his experience with war. With, he watched he, he, he and his family spent four years living in chicken coops and barns. He watches his father die of untreated diabetes. He watches every day as a child for four years. He gets down on his knees and says a prayer. He says, Dear God... I know I'm but a speck in the universe and you don't care about me, but could you please just let me live one more day? Um, In this period of his life, he discovers or cultivates a really peculiar imagination. And this imagination is central to their work. But none of it self-consciously, by the way. All All these things I'm telling you about Danny Kahneman came out on long walks with him answering, a, saying it kind of by the by and not realizing how interesting it was. And this is just generally true, that the best characters don't know their characters. And he really doesn't know what a great character is. He thinks he's normal. So think, think about that. And he also thinks that his childhood has nothing to do with who he is. He told me that. He says, I'll tell you all this because you're asking the questions, but I don't think it's who, it's, it has anything to do with who I am. But think of, imagine this. He, he discovers when he's hiding in chicken coops and afraid he's going to be killed every day. This very, this, this imagination that takes him out of where he is and he, he imagines himself doing preposterous things like single-handedly defeating the German army and he says it feels like I, it had happened. It gave me that kind of feeling. Like I had, and he said it's so, it was such a peculiar ability or a tendency that when he gets out, of, of France and is in Israel and is safe he finds he shouldn't imagine having the things he wants to get he wants to achieve he shouldn't imagine being first in his class because the, the, the experience of it, imagining it is so vivid it's as if he's got it and he loses his motivation to go and get it so I mean it's so extraordinary that he doesn't allow himself I mean, to, to, he, because at the end in 2002, when he's sitting there waiting for the Nobel Prize call, he hasn't allowed himself to imagine what it would be like to... know. Willfully stopped himself from imagining what it would like, be like to win the Nobel Prize. And I would like to come back to that at some point, because that scene is just... It's breathtaking to me, what he put himself through. But he, But these experiences... I mean... Inform their work in all kinds of ways and, the, and their war experiences. I mean, Danny, if we go back to, you know, my book starts with Moneyball and, and the premise of Moneyball is these experts using their gut are inferior to a crude algorithm. I think the first example of Moneyball that I've encountered is Danny Kahneman, age 21, in the Israeli army, being asked to... Um, to use his psychological training, which he's largely acquired by himself because there's no, there's no psychology department at the Hebrew University, to use what he's learned in books to see if he can improve the selection of Israeli officers because he is, they're having problems with the officer corps. The performance on the field is poor. And Danny looks at how the Israeli army is choosing officers in 1954 and they're choosing them by basically scouts, people who think they know what an officer is, interviewing a young man for a little bit and saying he's officer material. And Danny says that's not going to work as well as an algorithm. And he builds the algorithm to, uh, to evaluate young men that is used to this day by the Israeli army. Funny aside, Danny, I took Danny, we went for a week uh, to Israel, and I wanted to go see his military past. And he and I went to the base um, uh, where they train soldiers. Uh, and we got there and there was a huge crowd of really pretty Israeli female soldiers waiting for us. And, it, 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 and I thought, you know, Danny was in his late 70s at that point. And I thought, man, he's got it going on. you know. I mean, this is and, and it turned out they had put on the manifest uh, that Danny Kahneman was coming with Michael Lewis today. And there is an Israeli underwear model named Michael Lewis who's got unbe- unbelievable abs. And to Danny's chagrin, the minute we walk through the gate, they look at us and they all just fade away. Uh, but, but, I mean, his, he's noodling around as a 21-year-old in the army in response to practical demands made on him by the Israeli army with the whole notion of what's wrong with intuitive judgment
1: there 's a very unusual complaint in my experiences, which is that we 're talk- talking too much about personal interest and not enough about economics, which doesn't normally happen yeah. but uh, we should get onto to behavioral economics yeah. and what you think is the crux of what they undid if it was an undoing project, this friendship and in fact we were, we were starting to get onto it there, but what do you think of the sort of the the, the greatest insights or the things that have affected the world when you talk about it changing the world. So there are the two
0: ways to think about their work. One would be the way an intellectual would look at their work and say they're two bodies. They're, they, did, they made two big contributions. Um, one was to this field of judgment where they uncover cognitive bias. They, the idea of cognitive bias. that The idea that even when a, the mind should be ca- essentially ca- doing st- calculating statistics, should be, should be making a statistical estimation. That's not what the mind does. What the mind does is it, it tells a story. And the story is warped by, by various kind of kinks in the mind. It's warped by the way memory works, and it's warped by the way the mind makes similarity judgments, by the way it thinks in stereotypes. And uh, they did all kinds of little experiments to show that you could distort people's answers to questions that had a right answer. Even professional statisticians' answers to questions that had a right answer in predictable ways. And this work has all been replicated over and over and over. This doesn't have the work of replication problems that a lot of social psychology is facing now. Um, So, for example, I mean, uh, one of these... They they, they they, they end up dreaming of lots of fancy, incomprehensible jargon uh, for what they discover. They call the rules of thumb that the mind is using when it's it's telling these stories, trying to judge what's going to happen in the world. They call them heuristics. And they find several heuristics, and they put names to them. So let's take one, anchoring. The idea of anchoring is that you can distort a person's judgment by throwing a totally irrelevant piece of information right up front before they have to make the judgment. And this is a good example of just how kind of weirdly ingenious uh, their experiments were and how you can hear, you know, Danny and Amos would say that when they were in a room, they would be, what they would be doing is laughing. You can kind of hear the laughter behind the experiment. But they, they built a wheel of fortune and the wheel of fortune has 99 numbers on it. One to 99. And it... And they invite their lab rats, students, and whoever off the street, to come into a room and spin the wheel of fortune, and the fortune and the wheel lands on a number. And then they ask the lab rat uh, a question: What percentage of the uh, of the countries in the United Nations come from Africa? And people who spun a high number tended to estimate a higher number in, of countries in the United Nations from Africa. And people who spun a low number, spent a lower number. They did this over and over in all kinds of ways, showing you could, you could do what Donald Trump does every day, right? You can distort people's judgment by throwing out stuff up front. Uh, and, you could, and you could predict how that would be. So this body of work they call their work in judgment. An intellectual will then say, well then what they did is moved on to decision making. Which is a more sterile study of gambles, and it's, it's here where they're trying to figure out why people reverse preferences, uh, which which you're not supposed to do. Why? I mean, to put it the way Richard Thaler put it to me, said so why when you walk into the deli and they they say you say what do you have, uh, what kind of sandwiches you ha- do you have? And the guy behind the counter says, we have roast beef or turkey. Uh, and you say, I'll have turkey. And then he says, oh, no, 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 we actually have some ham in the back. And you go, hmm, then I'll have roast beef. He says, what? Well, people do that. With, people do a version of that, which is, they're not supposed to do, right? It kind of screws up a lot of economic theory if, if the, deci- the choices people make change a lot if you change the context in which they make the choices. So... Uh, they do they do work studying the way people respond to, to gambles, and when they're doing this work, they stumble upon some insights that become a paper called Prospect Theory, which, believe me, you don't want to read. But it is the paper that wins them the Nobel Prize, that wins day the Nobel Prize in Economics. But the, I think the 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 most interesting insight in the paper is is that if a gamble is framed as in a domain of gains, if, it's, if, if the person who is making the gamble is thinking they're playing with gains, they're risk averse. They, they're, they're less likely to take, they won't take the same bet that they would take if they think they're starting from a loss. So that the, the people, the people have a different risk profile if they are, think of themselves as losing than if they think of themselves as winning. And this has lots of implications, but you know, you say we should be talking about economics, and you know, it does say that up there. I did not dream up this title. <laughs> I think so. I'm gonna move on. To, that's academics would say that's what they did, and and that the prospect theory paper what it really did was sm- make it inal- academically respectable for ec- <laughs> economics to start talking about psychology and about the insights of psychology. Whereas psychology had never been able to work its way into economics. These people blew a hole in the side of economics and shoved some psychology into it. And Richard Thaler comes along and reads these papers and is inside of economics and starts to deploy the psychological insights in economics for which he's now won a Nobel Prize. I don't think of it, but I think that's a pretty reductive way to think about their collaboration. I think that they were just these two Israeli intellectuals who really almost were accidental psychologists, both of them, who were at odds with their own field, thought much of their own field was nonsense, who really are just asking what's going on inside the mind and trying to find scientifically respectable ways to investigate it. And yeah, they do generate all this stuff that ends up being... Um, internalized by economics and by psychology and other fields, but they, they also have all of this stuff that just ends up on the cutting room floor, which interested me as much as the stuff they were, as they were famous for. They spend an awful lot of time, a year of their lives, um, in investigating the role of regret in decision-making, the anticipation of regret. They, they dream up experiments where they have a lottery and people receive these lottery tickets. And they find that people who, who, have, who receive a number, whose number is one away from the winning lottery ticket, have <laughs> more regret about the lottery than people whose number is far away. I mean, crazy stuff, right? That shouldn't happen. But, and, the, and um, the book got its title from some of their work that never found its way into print, which, um, which is a, Danny Kahneman got it into his head as only Danny Kahneman would, that he wanted to study the rules of the human imagination. Now, um, the idea that the imagination has rules is itself an imaginative leap. And it comes to him, again, again it goes right back to Israel and war. His nephew, who would, uh, was a navigator in a, fighter pl- in a fighter, uh, Israeli fighter jet, uh, had been killed in, a tra- in an accident um, a day before he was do to get out of the Air Force. He'd been in for five years or a day short of five years. And uh, he'd been killed um, because a flare had gone off and blinded a pilot, his pilot. And apparently when you're in a jet and you're flying that fast, you can't tell whether you're ascending or descending. And they thought they were going up, they were going down and they flew right into the ground. So Danny goes to the funeral and he loved this kid. But Danny, because he's Danny, doesn't grieve. Instead, what he does is watch other people grieving. And he sees what they're doing is essentially trying to imagine their way back out of the tragedy. Uh, lots of what people are saying are can be formulated as if-only statements. If only he'd gotten out of the Air Force a day earlier. If only that guy had not shot that flare. And Danny thinks, well, if you're going to engage in this in this game called imagination creating alternative realities. There are a million different ways you could undo it. If only he'd been born a girl. If only there hadn't been an Israeli Air Force. If only they'd move like they said they were going to move before he went into the Israeli Air Force. Nobody went back that far. They started at the the end of the event, and they undid the first thing that had happened in time that you could undo and change the outcome. So he he starts to noodle uh, on... What are the rules? Like, What are the rules of these statements? They start to put people through tests. Undo this tragedy. How do you undo this tragedy? They describe a tragedy, undo it. Um, And they get to things. It's at that point, actually, that their relationship comes undone. uh, Because at that point, Danny is thinking that Amos isn't paying sufficient attention to his thoughts, that Amos has become too famous and is... uh, the whole relationship is premised on a kind of uncritical acceptance by Amos of Danny's ideas and he's not responding in the way that Danny would hope. Uh, but Amos is actually taking Danny's ideas and trying to turn it into math, trying to turn it into logic, uh, trying to frame them in a way that you could publish in a paper. And I, and I know this because in Amos's file cabinets was a folder that was called the undoing project. And I, when I showed it to Danny, he was ashen, that Amos had spent so much time thinking about it. But, but this sort of work um, was as beguiling as the work that actually has the effects it has.
1: I think we should uh, give people a chance to ask some questions. There's lots of other things we can talk about. But if you put your hand up and then wait for the, for the microphone. I remember from this place, it's very hard to see. All right here i'll take a few i've got we've got numbers that's right you'll get a number right over there okay so take number one first uh, michael your your books have been very influential and that's given you a certain power do you feel you might choose a future book to try and do something more useful for society be targeted on attacking corporate tax avoidance or some other social good rather than the more intellectual things you've done. When are you going to stop slacking, I think, is the other yeah. thing. So, yeah, so start changing the world, really. So number, the sorry. second no, no, one. Sorry. Well,
0: no, so it's, it's funny you say this, because I think the minute I try to be worthy, I cease to be useful.
1: I wish other people had that feeling. Um, Hi. Number two was over there, yes.
0: Yes. Uh, having lived through and documented each boom and bust since 87 and now worked with behavioural economics. Do you think the cycles are inevitable? You know, uh, it, it, it's not because of behavioural economics that I think the cycles are inevitable. Uh, and Behavioural economics has a bit to say about this, but not all that much. It's just the cycles seem inevitable because it's been ever thus. Uh, so uh, do I think people will we'll all together do stupid things and we'll all pay prices for them in the financial markets over and over and over again? Yes, uh, I do. Although
1: what was, what was funny about 1987, which I think sort of made people forget you could have a real financial crisis that really affected the real economy, was that you had that crash and you didn't have a recession and people paid the price in the markets... But there wasn't a broader effect. We didn't go through the kind of thing we went through with the global financial crisis. So I think I would also there's there's a sort of difference in those. The crises aren't all the same,
0: and you can even make the case that the '87 uh, uh, crisis, stock market crash, crash was crash was uh, sort of robot-induced because it was portfolio issues. People following it was rule-based investing that drove the market down. It was it was it was different from. Uh, very different in, in flavor from the 2007 and 2008. And the market went
1: right back up again right. within, the, within the year. Over here. Yes, hello. I was interested in what you were saying about the predictability of events. Um, obviously, in the big short, you focus on um, people who um, managed to predict the crisis of 2007 and 2008. And um, when I'm reading it, I think these guys are just a bunch of oddballs. You know, they're not the people I would naturally think are going to be perceptive about future events. Do you have an insight how to sort out the um, oddballs
0: from the naturally, percent, uh, naturally perceptive? So that's it's a really interesting question because you've discovered the weakness in the Big Short. The, and the weakness is that... Um, which I just hope people wouldn't notice. Uh, but I'll tell you what it is because it, it's because now it's, you forced my hand. Um, uh, those people who got it right, I knew I could seduce the reader into following them because they got it right. Because nobody wants to be with a stupid person. People want to be with a smart person. And they did in fact diagnose what had happened very well and could teach the reader what had gone on inside the financial system. But the idea that they were geniuses because they made all this money, uh, there's some truth to it, but the, the greater truth is there was a huge amount of luck in that, that they could easily have been right about what was going on in the financial system and wrong on their bets. Uh, and they got lucky. They, got, they all got lucky with the timing. Um, I used the reader's willingness to suspend disbelief in the presence of people who had made huge sums of money betting against Wall Street banks uh, to teach the reader about what had happened. I don't think that those people who were this, at the center of the big short have any crystal ball, that they aren't, they, they, I, they've subsequently proved themselves unable to predict anything else. I mean, they've all, none, of them have, none of them have had a second ax, right? I love them all. They're all really smart. They were all really, you know, kind of principled in seeing what was going on. And they were all really brave to make the bets they did, but they were also all really lucky.
1: Over here. Hi, I was wondering to what extent you can draw a line between behavioral economics and psychology.
0: That's a really, that's a great question because the psychologists are furious it's called behavioral economics. They, they feel like their work has been stolen by economics, all this great stuff has been stolen and, and just relabeled economics and the economists are getting credit for it again. Uh, so, so um, I suppose uh, the, um, Thaler himself would say you can't. So how can I? Uh, I mean, I could try, but but um, the, the point of behavioral economics is to let psychology into economics.
1: Which I think even uh, Thaler said himself, uh, or quoted others saying, that it, w- it should be redundant to say behavioral economics, because that's what economics should have been about in the first place, yeah. about the behavior of people. But it shows how stupid economists were that it took, uh, they needed an extra <laughs> adjective to add to it. Whereas the... Uh, I'm not sure that you're... The trouble is I've... uh... Yeah. Um, yeah, Michael, you talked about the fact they understood human fallibility and I wonder whether out of that there was a suspicion that they actually thought the art of economics and the attendant predictions was worthless.
0: Uh, Amos had great respect for economists. Uh, He liked the rigor of economics. He liked the math of economics and it was really Danny who dragged him to the idea systematic error um I, he wouldn't have gotten there without danny so they didn't think economists were stupid and it, it, in fact the reverse amos thought the best of the economists ken arrow for example with whom he thomas Schelling, with whom he was friends he much preferred their company to the company of his fellow psychologists but he did think there were problems with their field which is different and he put this very nicely to um a economist he didn't particularly like, but who, who, a prominent Harvard economist, Amos was with him at a conference, and they were out having a drink or dinner, and the guy was going on and on about how his students were all stupid, and these people in the markets he was watching were all stupid, and, and Amos turned to him and said. You think everyone's stupid, but all your models assume they're smart and rational. How do you figure that one out? Uh, And and so he was aware there was a problem in the field, which he distinguished from a problem with the economists.
1: Oh, okay, the upside-down three at the back.
0: Why do they Um, have numbers? So that I can (laughs) see them. (laughs) Um, I just wondered if they had any interaction with um, Dan Ariely, the other uh, Israeli behavioral economist or um, what they thought of him or what you think of him, if he's as brilliant. So I, I, so I don't know Dan and Ariely, so I don't have anything to say. I think that they, that Danny Kahneman and Ariely have written a couple of papers together. There are a whole wave of young or now middle-aged Israeli academics who are their disciples, but I don't think Ariely is one of them. So you mentioned earlier that there's a hospital that employs someone to check doctor's biases. But then you also mentioned that the biggest bias of all is that we can identify as others' biases but not our own. So no matter how much we learn, we can't correct our biases. So are we condemned to this perfe- perpetual cycle where we need someone
1: to check our own biases? And does that inherently make the person who checks the
0: doctor's biases useful? Do we need someone to check his biases? Yes and yes. <laughs> Excellent question. <laughs>
1: All right, we're going to have one more question, which I think, okay, I think, you, you, but did you ask a b- question at the beginning? No, okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just checking, just checking. You, you, you talked about how the, um, the collaboration kind of went sour at the end, and obviously history's is um, littered with lots of collaborations which lasted a very long time and kind of
0: ran their natural course. Was there any sense uh, from the work you did that there was rivalry and jealousy between them that was actually at the core? So what caused the collaboration to collapse? You talked about that, but I just yeah. wonder whether behind that there's actually kind of some rivalry, jealousy that actually triggers it. You know, it was, it, it, it was interesting because I, had, I only had one side alive to tell me, but there was some, Amos left his own versions in his in his files. But the... the uh, what seemed to have driven the collaboration, I think which drives a lot of collaborations, is the uncritical acceptance of other, uh, each other's ideas. And uh, as Danny said once, he said, when we said something, the other said, didn't ask, is that true? They asked, what might it be true of? It was The, the relationship was an improv comedy relationship, the structure of it. that You were, if I say something to you, you don't reject it, you accept it, and you build on it, however idiotic it may seem at first, and they did this with each other, and it just went places. <laughs> what happens is because Amos gets very, very famous, he gets a MacArthur genius Award reward without Danny, he gets their first the quickest appointment tenured appointment at Stanford in the history of the university he's when Danny can 't get a job at a university the, the, there was a un, very unequal division of spoils um, that caused some jealousy, but it wasn't the jealousy that was the problem, and I believe Danny on this subject. The problem was Danny began to sense that Amos thought that he was, he started to believe the feedback he was getting from the world and became, and he sensed more criticism from Amos as a result. So instead of accepting whatever Danny said and building on it, Danny felt like a a, a bit of rejection. Um, So this gets us to the Nobel Prize. Because when Amos Tversky dies in 1996, there are a lot of people who have told you that he would have gotten the Nobel Prize in Economics alone. Uh, But they don't give the Nobel Prize in Economics uh, to people who aren't alive. And now that he's not around, when people look at the work, the person who's alive is Danny. So Danny, having been neglected for quite a long time during the relationship. Everybody sees the genius in Amos, they can't understand. Danny's genius is harder to see. Um, In 2001, he's invited by Stockholm to come and give a talk, which he is an audition for the Nobel Prize. They know the work is so important, it it deserves it. They they kind of have heard rumors that Danny wasn't as important as Amos because that's been in the air for the entire relationship. He goes and gives a talk and comes back, and this is where I I wanted to get to this story, because I found it was so him, and also spoke so much to the relationship, and what made it tick, and why it didn't tick when it stopped ticking. Uh, Danny was given to believe, this was in 2000, he was, if he was going to get the prize at all, he was going to get it in 2002, and at any given moment, when the economics prize is about to be given out, you're not going to believe this. There are hundred people sitting by phones thinking they're going to get the Nobel Prize in economics, or might. So they're up at four in the morning in the United States waiting for the call from Stockholm. And as Amos said, there shouldn't be any of these prizes. For every one person who gets it, 99 people are made miserable. But Danny was sitting by the phone with his wife, and the call doesn't come. And as I said, He hadn't allowed himself to imagine up to that point what it would be like to get the Nobel Prize. So the call doesn't come. His wife says kind of sadly, oh well, and leaves the room. And he then allows himself to imagine how it would go if he won the Nobel Prize. And what he imagines is doing all the things for Amos that Amos, who didn't get his sensitivity metric, wouldn't do for him. He would bring... Amos' wife, widow, and children to the ceremony. He would write a biography of Amos and weave it into his acceptance speech. He would, he would uh, take a big photograph of Amos and put it up over his head as, uh, as he spoke and he received the Nobel Prize. He was gonna physically insist on Amos getting joint credit for the work in a way that Amos never insisted that Danny get joint credit for the work. It was what ate at him. And then the phone rings. And he gets the prize. And he does all of it.
1: Well, it's exactly 8.30, which is when we promise people we can leave. I mean, one of the interesting great lines in the book, which I was thinking of when you were talking about the pilots, is I think, and you would remind me which one says it, it says, it can be much easier to change the world than to prove you've changed the world. Mm. And I think that is true, and we've had a sense of it from you that is true of so many of their ideas, even though you can't always put your finger on it and there may not be easy policy solutions, but they do come to life in this book and it is on sale in the foyer. Thank you very much, Michael.